This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey, 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 welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and I'm super psyched because my friend Noah Vashon is here. Yes. Noah, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. By the way, I got to say, I love the intro music. It sounds like, uh, do you know the band Them Crooked Vultures? I do know them. That's Them Crooked Vultures is, well, is that? It's, it's like a super group. So it's Dave Grohl who yes. plays drums, and then it's like Josh Homie from uh, Queens of the Stone Age. That's right. Um, and then the bass player is the, the, the bass player from Led Zeppelin. So it's, well, it's a good band. I'm going to tell you that I'm going to find out. I, my friend, um, best of the be- beast, best in the beast is a band. Okay. With uh, the lead singer. Well, he's, he's a listener of Knife Talk and a listener to this. And his name is Ken Selmo. I, I, I'm going to find his name right now because I'm embarrassed. <sighs> <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to, it's bass in the be, bass in the beat. Best. Okay. Bass the best. Is this a band you've listened to? No. Oh, here it is. Nick Canselmo. Nick is the man. Nick, Nick Canselmo. He's the guitarist for the marvelous liars, marvelous underscore liars on Instagram. Okay. Cool. He's a listener of knife talk. And he's, he, uh, the funny thing is, is like when we started all this, Craig, Nick, I'm sorry. P.S. I do get a lot of messages saying how they love the stinger. So what happened was, is, you know, when Craig started this whole thing, he said, all right, you got to come up with a song. And I was like, I was having such a hard time with it because the, 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 the royalty free songs are hard. I mean, you can't get any worse. Sure. And then I was bitching about it. And then Nick was nice enough to say, we had this band called the marvelous liars. We'll, we'll, we'll make you a a stinger for the beginning of your show. And And I was just like, this is awesome. Yeah, it's got like a, I mean, in my opinion, it had like kind of like a little bit of the Eagles, a little uh, bit of the Eagles, like kind of like a funky, like 70s Rolling Stones kind of thing. Eagles. Yeah. I was into it. It feels a bit heavier than that to me. But anyway, I think it's great. And I was like, I was actually going to ask you because, you know, I've looked through some of those free, you know, the 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 no license required audio clips. And yeah, they're pretty garbage. And I was wondering where you found that one because that's a that's a gem. One of our listeners made it, yeah, made it up. I, the only thing we were, I had come, I had come down to like, I had my poor family. I was playing all these stingers. And at one point I had some Indian music, jazz, <laughs> Indian jazz. And my, my wife was just like, what are you doing? And I was like, <laughs> I have no idea. To be honest, you know, I'm getting sick of this. So we could have gone anywhere at that point, right? It could have, you know what? It really could have, you could have, but at the same time, it's just like some of these decisions I just don't want to make. You know, I just, I, I, I like to, the, le, the older I get, the less and less decisions I want to make. You know, I, mm. I know what I want. I don't know how to describe it well enough. And then I just don't want to make the decision. I'm just get like, I just throw my hands in the air. Sure. Well, there's such a thing as decision fatigue, right? Where you actually like get to the point where you just can't, you're just sick of it. That, I mean, especially you know, in certain jobs, obviously, where you have a lot of people demanding, you know, your time as knife makers, we don't really have that problem as much, but yeah, I think it's a real thing. You get to the point where you're just like, okay, I have to cut off communications or I have to, I have to just like stop taking in anything else from the outside and just process what I already got before I'm ready for more. You are so right. My wife, who's a nurse practitioner and she's kind of high level in, in her area. She'd been at the, her, her, her job for quite a while. When she comes home, she's like, I don't want to make any decisions. I want you to make the decisions because I'm tired of making decisions right. to the point of like, what do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want? <laughs> I don't know. What do you want? And she's, okay. she's like, look at me. She shoots daggers at me. And she says, just fucking figure something out, please. You know, so I totally understand decision-making to fatigue. Yeah, definitely. It's a real thing. 
So you're up and you know what? I tell you what, I am so jealous because I, I know that you're like, you're like an hour, 45 minutes from Quebec, right? So, well, so we're, I'm in Quebec. I'm in what's considered Southern Quebec. So I'm about an hour and a half, uh, Southeast of Montreal. And I'm like 10 minutes from the Vermont border. So, okay. Like back, you know, when it was, you're wet and you're East, you're East of Montreal. Uh, yeah. Southeast, Southeast of Montreal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice region. It's, it's, I mean, this is where I grew up actually. So I'm, I'm like, I moved back basically a few years ago. Um, are you, are you, so is your family French Canadian? No, no. Well, I mean, obviously at a certain point in the past they were because they've got the name, but um, no, they, 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 I think they moved to the Ontario, like near, um, near Ottawa. And then they just became like Anglophone. So, so you don't speak any French. Well, yeah, I speak French. You have to. I mean, if you, if you want to get by in Quebec, you, you have to know how to speak French. Huh. Uh, they teach it to you in school, but then, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, when I, when I was a teenager and getting my first jobs and stuff and moved to Montreal for, uh, right after high school, like, forget it. You're not going to get a job if you don't know how to speak French. So yeah, you got to, you got to. That's see that I, I, growing up in New York city, we never went to Canada. The only time I ever went to Canada was on a summer camp trip. Okay. We were, we went to Quebec to do whitewater rafting and see Quebec city. And it was like a total, like a mind, mind blowing situation for me. And, and then just a number of years ago was the first time I ever drove to Montreal, which is my favorite drive of all time. And then once you get close to the border, all the signs start to change. All of a sudden it's in, everything's in kilometers. The font of the, of the highway signs are different. And number one, it's a, it's a beautiful drive. It's a beautiful drive. 87 the whole way. I, I love, oh, yeah. it's great. It's such a great drive. It's a, 87 the entire way. You just get on 87, which is like maybe 20 minutes from my house. And then okay. it's just through the Adirondacks. Awesome. But the, the, we loved Montreal so much. And then I just loved the people were so nice. And the, and I, it was what I was surprised at was how eager people were to speak in English. Because what, what time you know, of year did you go, by the way? Uh, I'd was say the summer. summer. Yeah. yeah. People, people are nice there in the summer. Don't go, right? in the, don't go in the winter. Really? Montreal is like two faced. It's got two. Really? Yeah, totally. Because the winter, I mean, yeah, they have like outdoor activities. I mean, obviously this is before the whole COVID thing, but um, yeah, they try to have festivals and stuff during the winter, but for the most part, it's a cold, bitter winter because it's on an island and it's humid and it's like the cold just like cuts right through your coat. And yeah, so I find, I find like Montreal in the summer, Montreal in the winter are like two totally different cities. And in Hmm. the summer, everyone is celebrating just like it's parties every weekend, it's festivals every weekend because they're trying to make the most of the nice weather. So it's like one of those great examples where the shit gives you the good and makes the good even better. Right. So yeah, summers are amazing in Montreal because the winters suck so much. But see, I, I was that completely, that's surprising to me because I, I remember when we went to Quebec and we went to Panda Souk, that famous waterfall where in the wintertime it turns into this big, you know, sugar cake or I guess it's oh. like this big ice situation. And I just assumed, and then you hear about the people when the, on, in the winter, they start to go to work on their ice skates. I don't know if that thing right. is that much yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, sure. People go out ice skating. Actually, Quebec City, I think, is probably a little bit more of a hospitable city, and they have like a really cool winter festival in Quebec City. But Montreal, I don't know. There's something about Montreal. I lived there for 12 years, and uh, yeah, there's definitely like a sort of a bitterness that descends. I can't imagine what it's like there now. I have friends who live in apartments in the city, and right now, I think you probably wouldn't have heard about it. But so there's a curfew all over Quebec. 
Hmm. Nobody is allowed out of their house after 8 p.m. at night. So you can imagine if you live in a tiny little apartment in the city and everything's closed and no one's allowed to even congregate outside these days. Um, anyway, not to go into it too deeply, but I, I feel no. for the people who live in Montreal during this particular winter. I mean, Craig Lockwood, is he's got a six o'clock curfew. You what? know, in France, they got a six o'clock curfew. I don't, Better rush home you, from work. I mean, it's like, I mean, obviously you have to have paperwork, you know, you know, I, right. it's just the whole thing's totally crazy. I, I do. One of the things I, about Montreal that's, you know, I love France. I love, I've, I've spent a few uh, times in, in Paris. I love Paris and cool. France in general. But one thing that the food scene in Montreal is so amazing. It's but good. there's yeah. a definitely like an American style version of French food where the portions are 10 times bigger in Montreal than in France. In Paris. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. The whole North American thing influences it big time. Yeah. But the food scene is like, I mean, I had heard, I had heard about Joe Beef, and I heard, I, I think I saw uh, Anthony Bourdain did a thing about Joe Beef, yeah, and, and that whole, that whole kind of gluttonous, you know, <laughs> it, it seemed like there was definitely like this, uh, this, this direction towards, you know, you know, eating through the cold, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, definitely high fat, a lot of protein, um, yeah, and that's a great restaurant, and actually. The sister restaurant is called Liverpool House, which is kind of like two doors down. Those guys basically bought up like a block and opened up a whole bunch of different restaurants in different like price points with different themes or whatever. But Liverpool House was one that uh, that was just my favorite restaurant to go into in Montreal. Not an every That's- not an every week kind of thing. It's a little heavy. It's a little pricey too. But uh, yeah, the food scene in Montreal is great. It, what's interesting, well, then it'd be that whole what you were saying about like they bought a block up. That's the only way these restaurant guys can make any money. Because if you think about right. it, you open one restaurant up and maybe all of a sudden everything's okay. You hit the glass ceiling on how much money can you could pull in. You know, you're not like, you know, you're not changing the plate prices, you know, 10 times. Right. So what happens is, is you hit that glass ceiling and you're just like, the only way I'm going to make any more money is I open up another restaurant. Because you can only do so many service, you know, so much yeah, service. Yeah, that's so right. That's true. These guys become restaurateurs because all of a sudden there ain't no raise. I mean, you can't. I mean, if you can only do a certain amount of people per night, and you know, you're you're the you you can't just keep changing the prices. You got to you know cater to your customers. You end up coming to grips with the fact. Well, well, now we have an we have an accounting program. We have, I'm accounting department. We know how to do the cooks, and I got a couple cooks. I can you know a couple line cooks, so I can send over to the next restaurant. Right. You know you have you have your network of staff, and it's the it's the logical progression. And what normally happens? I had a friend who's a restaurant tour around here. A couple restaurant tour friends of mine. Okay. And what happens is is you get to the point where it's just like you open three places, you open four places, and then it's just like, are you spread too thin? <laughs> and then. COVID-19 hits oh, man. and it destroys, I mean, it destroys your business. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's a huge, huge problem in New York city right now because oh, sure. I just drove down to the city a couple of weeks ago to help uh, my business partner. And I, we moved out, got rid of our New York office and driving down Lexington Avenue. It was, they gave, you know, a uh, preference to the restaurants to be able to open these like outdoor shanty towns for the, you know, outdoor covering. So they like can right out front. Yeah. Like right out front of the restaurant kind of thing. Yeah, And it's like, I mean, it's literally like, I mean, it's just like these guys just got some plywood together and two by fours <laughs> and some Christmas lights. And it's, it's terrible. I mean, it looks, I mean, it looks terrible. And, but, and, the, but the problem is, is because the wind now, once the winter hit, it's impossible. People aren't going to sit outside and you're not going to pay $50 a seat for some mediocre shawarma. You know, so this is yeah, not going right. to happen. 
These are some actually like decent restaurants. You're not talking about fast food joints or something. That's Every re- well, I mean, I don't think McDonald's. It's a, not a McDonald's or something like that. But like any right. small restaurant had the ability to open up. You know, they get, basically the city gave in a lot of towns in, in uh, bigger towns, they gave the restaurant owners the ability to um, like take over the sidewalk kind of thing or? for good. For good, huh. like they're able to like they're able to um, you know use it in, you know for a long long time. But the problem is, is once this, and, and from some, from what I understand, a lot of places, a lot of friends of mine who have like beer gardens did well, but the places that like, you know, it's just, it's just, you're sitting in the street and it's just not, it's hmm. not like Paris where it's, you know, it's like meant for the cafe world or even <laughs> Montreal has a cafe scene. And it's just like, it's part of like a lifestyle. It didn't really work here. And especially when it gets cold. Right. Yeah. I can <laughs> imagine. No, I feel, my heart goes out to those guys for sure. I mean, there's a local restaurant here that there's a. I mean, we live out in the middle of nowhere. There's a small town about 15 minutes from here that has one restaurant. And that's the place that we go. It's Sylvia's. We go to Sylvia's to have, you know, breakfast on the weekend and you know, pick up a pizza if you're getting lazy or whatever. And we oh, just, you know, my heart goes out there. We, we've, we've tried to eat there as often as we can. And of course, now it's takeout only. But there's only so much restaurant food that you can fit into your diet slash budget, obviously. But uh, oh. You know, I, I, you know, it's, it's like the lottery. I mean, there's some businesses that are doing gangbusters and there's some businesses that are just losing their shirts. And it's like, you could never have predicted which one was going to do well until all of this shit happened. Uh, well, this is one of the things that's, I mean, from what, I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant to say it's, you know, I, I'm very hesitant to say this, but like a lot of makers, especially knife makers and makers who are actually making products that they're selling, or they've already established a way to sell them. They're not doing bad. And no. I'm, I'm saying that very, very sheepishly. I'm not saying I'm, I've heard some some friends of mine are like doing great, and and I'm just hoping. I'm just like I hate to say it out loud because it's like in, in my, my, my like when growing up, my dad used to use this Yiddish expression saying, "Don't put a can of her on something," and that's like the evil eye. Like if you say okay. it out loud, if you right. say it out loud. You know, you know, God is going to punish you. So I always, I'm even though I'm not, I'm not a little pretty lapsed, you know, half non-practicing Jew. I don't really get. To, I still, I'm still like I don't want to put a can of her on it, and and then the next thing you know, it's just like. You know how long is going to last? You don't want to jinx it, basically, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Well, I, I mean, I think that ugh, shit. I mean, personally, uh, the whole the whole lockdown, the whole COVID, the whole thing, it's been obviously not great. But when I look at my life as a whole and how it's been affected by it, I'm so grateful. Like I yeah. feel so lucky. We're not in the city. We're not in a tiny little apartment. I mean, our house is small, but we've got we've got a couple acres, so we've got room to move around outside. My work is right next door. I don't have to stop going to work. I don't have any employees. Like there was a point where I was considering expanding the business and maybe trying to take on a couple employees, take out a bank loan, get a bigger shop, all that kind of stuff. I'm so glad I didn't do that. And that I just kept everything small without any debt. And, um, and, and as a result, like I'm able to still make enough money that we can, you know, my, my family's, got food and clothes, you know, we're doing fine. We're not in, we're not like super stressed financially. And I get to keep doing this thing that I love that, that, you know, fulfills me and, and gives my life like this great additional purpose. And so anyway, yeah, super lucky but to be doing what I'm doing. It's, it's, it, you know, I think being, you know, grateful for that is important. And, and I think that also it's like, it's not, you almost feel a little bit guilty because I mean, I got friends of mine who are just like, it can't work. I know welders. Can't <laughs> yeah. Work. You know, yeah. it's, it's I mean, like, I guess it's it, like survivor's guilt or something. 
you know. That's right. It is survivor's guilt. <laughs> it, it, or or uh, what's the expression? It's um, when you don't feel like you deserve your uh, imposter syndrome. You know about imposter mm-hmm. syndrome? Mm-hmm. I get that shit all the time. Oh, I God. get that shit all the time. And, and it's and it's something that probably a lot of people, other people do too. Um, sure. But uh, survivor guilt is totally true. I mean, but at the same time, it's just like it is amazing how much well, here in the United States is amazing. You know, people are online all the time. And yeah, they're buying stuff and yeah. and they're not the, going on vacation, so they got more money. And but now the problem is is the post office is a fucking disaster. Oh. I had stuff that's been in the mail. I have I have one package that's been in the mail to the UK for a month and it looks like it's coming back. Uh, and the other thing is oh. I've had Christmas stuff where I gave myself plenty of time and it didn't show up. It showed up a week or two late. And it's like, it's like, it's like all of a sudden it's like, okay, business is going great. And we're actually slowing down the way we do things just because we're trying to change the way we do things and stuff like that. And then my business partner, Tony moved and we're just trying to get everything squared away. So we're kind of like, we've been kind of slowing down just a little bit. Hmm. And all of a sudden it's just like, okay, let's roll. And then the, the, all of a sudden the post office is terrible. And it's, and it's like, you that's, know. that's what you, uh, USPS, that's how you ship most of your stuff. Like even international. It's the only, it's the cheapest, it's the mm. most, I've had the most success with the USPS. Okay. And I actually just sent some stuff UPS and it was a wreck and it was ex- oh. super expensive. Like I couldn't believe how expensive it was. And I know that you, didn't, you just got like this huge package of steel and you yeah. posted about how expensive it was. Oh yeah. It was, well, it was like a thousand bucks worth of steel and it cost 500 bucks to ship it. That's so. insane. But you know, this is also, this is one of the things about, COVID that's kind of screwed things up for me too. So I live in Canada where at least up until very recently, there were very few like companies that supported knife makers. So there were a few, there were a few companies, but they were buying all their stuff from like New Jersey Steel Baron and, you know, they were getting their stuff stabilized by K&G. They were doing still all their business in the US, but then obviously there's a markup, they got to make a living. And so to the Canadian buyer, um, it was tough, but I figured out since I live so close to the border, that I could just get a P.O. box in Derby Line, Vermont, which is like, you know, 10 minutes from my house and have everything shipped to that address and then just go across and bring it through customs on my own. It's you. That's how I've been doing it. And I've been saving like a lot of money on tax, a lot of money on shipping. And it's, you know, it's, it really helps. Obviously your materials represent a pretty big part of your, your end product. So now with the border closure, it's just, it screwed all that up. So I've got to send everything through, you know, the most expensive shipping channels possible, essentially, and then paying the maximum amount of tax when it comes in. It's being taxed not as like a wholesale good, but as a retail good. Anyway, not to go too deep into it. And I'm still, no. you know, it could be worse, right? But it, yeah, in the end. You know, it's fa- I find it to be fascinating, to be honest with you. And and that is such a clever move because you're so close to the border. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know that uh, my friend Jonathan Porter, Doghouse Forge, he drives up to the New Jersey Steel Baron once a year. It's cheaper for him to buy. To buy. He buys sheets. He'll drive truck. up, he'll come, he'll come visit me and then he'll fill the truck up and then he'll just do it, you know, from Florida to New York, maybe take 20 hours or something. He'll do it in two days or wow. one, you know, and it's cheaper for him than to have it shipped. Yeah. If you do Yeah. I can imagine if you're buying a year's worth of stuff for sure. <sighs> what a bunch of works. So yeah. just to get it to, 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 I, I did a little bit of research on you and, okay. and I know that you're, and then you were an industrial designer. Yeah. Yeah, that was like a late uh, career change. Um, I went back to school when I was like, oh shit, 31, 32, something like that. I decided that uh, I was kind of done. 
Well, I mean, I mean, I guess I'd have to go back a little ways, but yeah. without going too far back, basically, you know, I never finished university. Um, I always thought I was going to be a professional musician. I thought that was like the thing I was going to do because ever since I was 12, I'd been playing music and writing songs and, you know, trying to put bands together. And like, that was the thing. I was like, this is what I'm good at. This is what I want to do. There's nothing else I'm good at other than this. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> that's obviously not the most, uh, it's not the easiest path to follow, let's just say. And, 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 right. and there are no guarantees, you know, um, that you're going to ever actually be able to make a living doing it. So I tried on and off over the years. And of course, I had to have jobs that I didn't particularly like, like everybody who doesn't have a degree and isn't following a career path. You know, you, you work just to, just to pay the bills, just to, just to eat, you know. So it's not necessarily a job that you enjoy. So at a certain point, I just got just sick of that sort of cycle. Um, and I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to take industrial design, which seemed like it fit pretty well. At the time, I was uh, building furniture, doing custom furniture. I'd already tried to make a career as a secondary, quote unquote, safer option, uh, building guitars and selling guitars. And I just wasn't able to figure that one out either. So, yeah. What do you mean? Well, okay. So it was, it was before it was easy to sell things online. So right. you, to try to build up a following and a reputation and to try to convince someone to spend, you know, three, 4,000 bucks on a handmade guitar, you have to go to a lot of shows. You got to know a lot of people. You've got to be sponsored by makers who are, you know, better than you. At least that's the way it was. Like this is all pre, you know, the way things are now where you can sell right. stuff on Instagram where people are totally comfortable giving their credit card information. Like that was, it was so anyway, and it, there were other factors, obviously, too. Like, I wasn't very organized. I was younger and less driven. And, you know, there are other factors to that, too. But it didn't work out. Um, and I was just sick of doing, like, odd jobs and scrambling. So I went back to school, spent three years, got a degree, really loved the school part of it. And, you know, taught me, taught me a ton of the stuff that I know that, that, I, that I use now, you know, mm. in knife making. I mean, it was like almost, you know, knife making adjacent in terms of like education, like you, so many of the skills like model making and um, just drawing and designing and understanding line and proportion and a lot of the stuff that I'm sure you got from your art education, that you can just take that skill and then transfer it to pretty much whatever you want to do with it, right? I didn't get the technical, I didn't get the technical part, you know, the, the art fucking art school stuff. If you go to an art school, then you end up getting the technical parts. But if you just go to a liberal art school and you're part of the art department, okay. they give you a very, very uh, broad uh, teaching of like the proper techniques to do shit. You okay. know, drawing, it's great, but it's like my welding teacher was like, he fucking, he had, I mean, he, 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 we had the, we had the people from Smith come over to see our stuff. And he's like, why are you doing this? He's like, you're going to kill these kids. So it was like, you know, the regulators were all too high and they were, you know, not being, you know, the diaphragms weren't being released. And these guys don't have a technical, they don't have a technical. I had to learn technique outside of art school. Right. So okay. like learning industrial design, I would think would be, and I just saw you just recently did a post where you were using these, um, these uh, ship curves yeah yeah those things are great but but you're but you're you're getting like a technical a technical um idea of what things were how things work it just makes it so much better yeah it, yeah i mean a lot of what i was doing was technical i've spent a lot of time you know learning how to 
just do 3D models of things online as well as making models by hand and, and, you know, doing things to a drawing, like learning how to draw something and then build it so that it's actually exactly like the drawing. That's, that's a pretty good thing to, to learn how to do. Um, and you know, there's obviously, you, you got to repeat it. You got to do it an awful lot before it starts to make sense. And so that, that period where I was learning how to do that stuff, super, super valuable, not for what at the time I thought I would do with it. You know, at the time I was thinking, this is, this is great. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to finally be one of those guys who goes to work every day and who has a, you know, career path and people will respect me for it. And, you know, all of the things that (laughs) I guess now I'm like really happy I don't have to do. Um, But at the time I thought that was the answer. At the time I thought the answer to this, like sort of drifting that I've been doing for years and years and years is I'm going to, I'm going to do the thing that everybody else does. Right. Right. And that's, you know, that's, tough. that's, a, that's a, such a tough spot because you, 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 you know what you like to do, mm-hmm. but you think that what I like to do isn't working and I need to like, maybe I need to do what other people like to do and the, or other people do. And maybe that'll make me happier. That, that's the story of my life. That, that, right. su- that sums up like basically the period of like from the age of basically like, you know, 15 to 35. Wow, that's a long, long time. That's a long time. It's a long time. Like I, I, you know, self doubt. Long time. Yeah. I mean, I consider myself to be basically like a late bloomer, like a very late bloomer. You know, it. You know, it took me a long time, basically, to just realize that um, I don't want to fucking have a job. And it's not because I don't want to work. It's because I don't want to be a part of that system. I don't want to have to present myself in a way that's catered specifically for those people in that environment. And I don't want to have to like constantly be worried about my interpersonal relationships with my coworkers or making sure that the boss is happy with me or like all that shit. It just like, it caused me so much stress yet. I didn't think that there was really truly an, a way to avoid it. Like every endeavor that I had, you know, starting a small business, trying to build guitars, trying to build furniture, um, uh, you know, trying to get into like filmmaking and writing. I was doing for periods, like I was writing screenplays and stuff like that. And every time I was doing one of these new creative endeavors, thinking maybe this is the one, there was like a voice in the back of my head that was saying for now, but eventually you're going to have to get a real job, <sighs> you know, and that would always just suck the life out of that project. And so, um, honestly, knife making, when I first started knife making was the very first time that I started something and didn't have that voice. It was the first time that voice was like, yeah, okay, go for it. There was like, it was just like, you know, a magic moment. I feel like, I feel like one of the things about knife making that people don't realize, especially knife makers, because it's such a small item, you don't have to get a chain hoist to move it around. You don't have to have special equipment to pick it up. You pick it up and you bring it over to this machine, you bring it over that machine. There's a simplicity to it. And then there's this, also there's this mental, there's um, like almost like this mental thing saying it's not such a big deal because it's, it's in my hand. It's a very approachable. And I believe that there is something to that that allows your, your average person to get into knife making. Cause it's not like you can go home and say, I'm going to build a car. You know, you're not, you don't, you don't really need to invest a ton of, of, of energy into, um, equipment and material to start to get into it. No, once you, you obviously, once you get into it, you like, you know, it's like feet, you know, you go, you know, head first. But yeah. But you can start it, really small, like really it's approachable. small. Yeah. 
it's it's Definitely. it's super it's super approachable because all it is is a hard uh, you know a hardened knife hardened steel blade with a handle on it right you know it's like and it's sharp it's got to cut something yeah so i think that i think that i i what's interesting to me about you especially is i looked at your guitars and i know that you had a website oh you took that shit down i know i, I, I look you like i don't want people uh, to fucking order a guitar for me now no, no. there's there's a there's incredible vision um visual connection between your guitar, guitars and general knives because it's this not only is it in terms of the shape and the profile and the handle materials or the materials in general but there's this like there's this kind of there's this connection between the materials you know with the strings and the tuners and the all the, the big bits and bobs that makes it work and the metal versus the wood body and the frets sure. and everything the yeah. materials are more or less the same right i mean like i was making mostly acoustic guitars but electrics is the same it's wood it's a bit of steel you know throw a little bit of bone in there you got the nut or the saddle made out of bone maybe a little bit of abalone inlay for the for the dots on the neck or whatever you're you're more or less dealing with the same you know steel wood and then a few other natural materials as like accents so yeah for sure i can see that tie-in they're both they're all they're both very intimate Right. They they're are intimate very products intimate. they're they're things that you i mean a guitar when you play guitar you're practically hugging the thing you know and a knife you're 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 cradling it in your hand so as a as a designer as a builder i love that that intimacy that that you can develop with with the product oh yeah i mean that's that's the whole thing it, i i just I, I love i mean for me the connection for me with what i loved about the knives where they reminded me of my sculptural lures where it's carved wood contrasting with steel hooks and like right. paint and color and steel and the wood and the steel and there was so much connection between the two. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't separate myself. Like I, I found like it, it felt like a very easy transition for me in terms of just like the very subconscious level in regards to what it is now. And the same thing with your, I would imagine even more so with you with the guitars and the knives, because the quality of your knives are so beautiful and the stylized quality, not st there's not stylized. I shouldn't even say stylized. They're so, they're so precise and the shapes and the lines and the oh, contrast between the steel and the handles are just so exquisite and then there is one guitar on your instagram and i know you don't like to talk about it but i don't know what value like to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, yeah, i could talk but about I, anything i definitely saw a lot of similarities and i saw a lot of there was like there was something that you can't explain i can't put words into it but there was a connection between the two that was very very Noah Vachon. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, in the end, like we make things that we like. I mean, I don't make right. any knives that I don't like. So, you know, I was doing the same with guitars. I was making guitars that I liked. So, you know, I guess there's like that same, they were both put through the same filter of me, right. you know, essentially, yeah, but, I guess. But it's, but, you know, with, with sculpture, you can make whatever you want, you know, and mm. you just have to be able to talk about it. You have to be made to describe your decisions with a guitar and with knives. There are certain things that you have to have, you know, yeah. so there, there is, there is a very, very important, uh, co transition contrast between materials that are, you know, very important. You can't just, they have to have the steel and you have to have the wood and there has to be this kind of like dialogue between the two. Well, they have to I, work, I just, right? They, they have, have to work. They have to function. Yeah. But the difference comes to me, which, which, which I was thinking about it. Cause you know, I do a lot COVID especially has made me a better cook. I, I mean, that's all from now. I mean, I've always cooked for the family, but like I used to take it for granted and we ate a lot more meat and I've, I found myself, i we decided as a family, that we were just going to be a little bit more, not completely vegetarian, but more plant-based. And it made me, and I went back to the culinary school 
when I when, you know, was learning, I was talking to my culinary school professor and he used to say, if you learn how to cook for vegetarians, you become a better cook. Mm. And that is a hundred percent true. We <laughs> eat a lot of fish and stuff. And, and I still, you know, if I can get a piece, if I can get a steak, you know, I'll get a steak. You know, I don't, I'm not like a, you know, crazy person, but it's made me a better cook for sure. And right one of the things that the difference between the knife and the guitar is, is, you know, you have your guitar, it's all the technique. You know, if you're playing it, you're, you're, it, it's the technique that you put into the guitar that makes what happens. Mm-hmm. But with like a culinary knife, without the stuff, you can't do shit with it. Hmm. You know, without the things to use it with. Right. It, so it's a less of an intimate object than a guitar because a guitar is, it's, it's the guitar. It, it, it's a, it's an amplifier of who you are. But a knife is, is a, it's a, it's like an extension of what you can do. Right. It's like a hammer, to do it. right? It's like yeah, that, exactly. you know, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. So, you know, exactly. To, to, yeah. If you've got a knife, you're looking for something to cut, obviously. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I yeah. still am surprised. I'm still surprised that culinary knife makers don't like to cook as much. I like, love that, that is a shock. Yeah. Oh, you do? Oh, fuck. yeah. I'm, I am the cook in, in my family. So, you know, I cook every night. I cook supper every night for the family. And I you love did, it, you know. You did a video a few, maybe a year ago, oh. that I really loved. And one of the things about your knives that I love is your very, your belt finishes are incredible. Oh, you're you. like on my like high list in regards to what I should be aiming for. And, and, and it's like, but you also do like, I know you do the S grind for, if this is the first time you're hearing about what an S grind is, it's basically a hollow in the middle of the blade that is to allow you a degree of food release. So yeah. when you're cutting through something, that pocket inside the side, you know, you're, you're whatever, usually it's like a, you know, something that's got a, you know, like a cucumber or a potato isn't going to stick to the side if you're cutting it thin. And then you did something called, and I'd never seen it before. I mean, you did what you call the diamond grind, mm-hmm. which is, can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not that different from an S grind. It's the same. I mean, it's working off the same principle, obviously. The idea is you're trying to get some of the knife to not touch the food, right. right? Less of the knife that's touching the food, the less suction you're going to get with, you know, whatever you happen to be cutting. And um, I tried doing some S grinds and I don't know, I just felt like, thir- so I was using this 36 inch radius platen, which seems to be the common thing that a lot of people use for S grinds, right. which is pretty shallow, right? I mean, it doesn't make a very deep hollow. So I wasn't really getting results that I liked from it. And so I had this 10 inch wheel and I thought, well, so try it, try it, see what happens. So I messed around a bit and I came up with this, you know, more or less, it's like a, it's like an S grind. It's a hollow, but it's a, it's a tighter, deeper hollow and it's a little bit higher up on the spine. And, um, so it, it lightens up the blade and it has good food release. I like the way it looks. I mean, that's part of it too, right? Yeah, it's great. And and I, and I actually, you know, I find that. One of the things about it is it makes making a distal taper, like this obviously has nothing to do with the performance side or the end user's experience with the knife. But to me, one of the great benefits of that is it makes making the distal taper really easy. Because like if you've ever done a tapered tang, you know that you, you tend to put hollows on both sides to hog out a bunch of material right. in order to allow you to taper that tang much more quickly because you got less material to remove. This is kind of the same idea. If you put two big hollows, in your blade, then it's going to be very easy for you to remove the material up near the front of the blade to make your, to make your taper, right? So much sense. So that makes so much sense. That wasn't like the intention, but it was kind of one of those like, 
added perks that I discovered along the way. Um, but it also encourages me to make that type of knife more because I find I, I like the process of making them. You know, you got to enjoy yeah. you got to enjoy making what you make in order to keep doing it. Otherwise, you just won't. Right. No, no, nobody tell, does what they don't want to do. I can tell that you enjoy the process. Like I can see it when, especially with your process videos, I, I, I do when you, your Instagram is great because when you talk, you talk in such a very calm and you seem like you're generally having a good time. For sure. Like, I, yeah. I don't love grinding. Like if, 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 if there was one part of knife making that I would throw out the garbage, it would be the <laughs> grinding part. Serious. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't blame you. I mean, it's dirty and, and it, uh, it's hard on your hands and, uh, uh, it's, ex you know, it's expensive you know with yeah. all the abrasives and shit yeah i'm not a big i'm not a big fan of grinding that's definitely not my favorite part um, you're good at it i got you know what when i first started grinding i mean it was a mystery man i i looked at i think the guy who i was the most impressed with at that time was um i can't remember his actual name pariah knives you know who i'm talking about oh right? yeah chris chris his grinds i was just like i would look at his grinds and i would just say you know no how th there's got to be a trick like what i don't get it yeah. how is he doing that my grinds look like such shit when i first started and so I just set my sights on him, essentially. I was like, I'm going to figure out how to do grinds like that, or at least, you know, as clean as that. Um, so I think holding yourself to a high standard is usually a good move when you're, when you're trying to get good at something. Um, and Chris yeah. Adelhart. I'm sorry. I okay. said Chris Adelscott. Chris Adelhart. Chris is the great. Chris is great. His knives are awesome. Yeah. I love his Dude. knives. I once asked him how he does his grinds. I, I usually, when I, when I, if I do a belt finish, I do a really good job. I send him a picture. I said, I'm trying to channel, channel you. Right. I said, my, and I said, the only thing I can think that you do is you hold your breath a lot. And he goes, oh yeah, yeah. all I'm doing, I'm holding my breath. All I'm holding oh, really? Oh yeah. He's That's like, funny. when I do those things, I'm holding my breath. He's actually, Chris is a really interesting guy. I met him at the Blade Show a couple years ago. He is, I think he's like a martial artist. Like he's like okay. a kendo guy. Like I think he does like sword fighting. So yeah. there's a lot of like, there's a lot of like, you know, there's something to be, it's almost like calligraphy where you, you're, you know, you, you take, you, you have this mindset where you, and I'm, now this is all speculation. I have no idea. You know, hey, you, talk about, it could be right. It could be. Yeah. I, this is the best thing about this podcast is I could say whatever the fuck I feel like, and it doesn't, I, I could be completely wrong. I honestly don't, don't care, No, but it, I think there's like this, you know, there, you just kind of, you know, with, with making anything, there's something to be said about having to just take up the plunge and not ha be too, uh, indecisive. And it seems as though, mm -hmm. especially with the level of detail of his work, he's just got to, he's constantly in this position of failure. You know, the, the distance, the, di the distance between success and failure is this razor thin edge. And right. I think he likes to get right up on it. Right. You know, well, I, I mean, yeah. And, and look, look at his results. I mean, whatever, whatever methodology he's using is, is working. Yeah. yeah. He's a good dude. He's mm -hmm. a good dude. But one thing back to your video, I yeah. like the fact that you did like a performance test and where you compared a flat grind to a hollow grind and to a diamond grind right. to, to, see, to see what the difference is in regards to food release. Yeah, I think that, that I, you the, have to the, do that. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, sorry no, for no. Go ahead. I just I, I get very like I wonder because when I talk to professional chefs and cooks and stuff like that, most of the time food release is never something they've ever brought up. I've mm -hmm. never heard a cook talk about food release, not once. That's funny because it's one. I, it's I, something I, I think about every time. Like mm -hmm. I cut an onion and it you know sticks to the knife, and then it I make the next cut and it slides up and falls off the spine, and then you know half of it topples onto the floor. I'm like. Damn it. Like, 
there's got to be a better way, you know? Mm. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, at, when I cook, I guess also as someone who uses tools a lot and a variety of tools in a variety of ways, I'm always thinking about what they're doing and if they're doing a good job and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I would think like a, you know, professional chef who's, who's cutting all day. Maybe, maybe, you know, they're just focusing on speed and, you know, they don't care if they make a mess or I don't know. I don't think, I think most cooks don't know anything about knives. Mm. And this is something I, the first time I ever heard this was from Jason Knight. I was at Mareko and I were doing a live feed from a restaurant with my friends were at. And I just remember that um, Jason Knight gets on and he goes, well, cooks don't know about knives anyway. And I was surprised. I was surprised to hear that. And then all of a sudden, the more I talked to cooks, I think a lot of them buy knives as if they're, um, one friend of mine said, it's like being Michael Jordan, you know, who has the mic, the, the new Nikes. Yeah. You know, there's right. a lot of that. Right. There's a lot about that, you know, because a lot of them just buy inexpensive knives, which just work perfectly well and they're perfectly happy using them. Sure. Sure. Well, or they're spending an awful lot of money on, you know, super high end handmade knives. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily know how to use them, right? You know, it's 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 tough because I think that you know I think that I sometimes I feel like, and this is no disrespect to knife makers, I think that we push on sometimes more than what our customer really needs or wants. Mm. Like I, I, I mean, that might be that might be just like me just being like contrarian. When I mean, I, it also has to do with the fact that. You know, growing up, to me, my f- biggest influence was Keith Haring. The the um, he's a he's a very famous uh, artist in New York City. Right, I've seen and, some of his stuff. Yeah. Oh, he used to do the crack is wax signs and the the the, the radiant babies. It's the most he's the most you know well known kind of graffiti artist. Right. And he created the concept of in regards to art in uh, for being for the people it didn't have to be in a gallery. So you started to see that I started to see that it was approachable. And I really, when my work, when I started to make my work, my sculptures, I also actually had a, uh, uh, a mentor who was a, a famous sculptor and his name was Lee tribe. And actually he does actually work with uh, sunset forge, believe it or not, huh. at, uh, the New York, uh, New York studio school, there are teachers together. And he used to talk to me about sculpture in terms of size. And he says that when you make small size, small size sculpture it's not a maquette but it becomes more approachable to the viewer and sometimes when things are more approachable to the viewer you can kind of allow the price to you know you drop the price a little bit and then it becomes more approachable to be put in someone's house Mm -hmm. so that's something that i've always taken and, and i always i kind of put that towards when i make knives in regards to how can i make this something that they like something that they can use and something that that they don't feel like they're you know being you know you know put over a barrel for sure so i'm always kind of think sometimes i i overthink it a little bit to be honest with you well i mean in the end you're not forcing anyone to buy a knife and if it's no. if it's more expensive than they can afford they just won't buy it and then maybe somebody else will um you know like i'm i think this is a pretty common sort of theme with craftspeople that where they say like i can't afford my own work right, right. so we have to keep in mind that not everyone can afford what we're doing and I don't feel like it's necessarily my responsibility as a maker to offer something at every single price point because, well, for, for one, I probably wouldn't be able to afford to keep doing it if I right. was trying to do that. Um, but I, I don't know, you know, price is tricky for sure. Price is tricky. I don't know. I, I, no, I, I appreciate you saying that. And I totally agree. I think it's like, obviously, you know, you can't, you know, just make stuff just so everybody can have it. Can't make everybody happy. 
a funny story is when I'm I, the last time I did a, an outdoor show, I was asked by the the city that I live in to do this Christmas uh, event, and they wanted me to do this big rack with you know my giant fishing lures, and I had like you know fifteen twenty of them. And it was just like it almost like a giant totem pole, were kind of neat. And okay. This woman, this woman came up in a, in a you know rascal scooter with like a watch cap on, and she looked at them all, and she says. How much of those? And I and I saw the smallest one was like two hundred bucks. It was just you know two foot lure or something like that. The biggest one was like you know two grand, three grand. Right. And I told her the price range, and she says, "I never pay that much for bait." And turned her around and left. <laughs> it was really funny. It was really like I was just like I'm not doing this anymore. I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's just like fucking retarded. I, it's awful. It was like it was such a bad experience because just like this woman just looked at it like these like lures. I never pay that much for bait. That's hilarious. So, I mean, maybe it was yeah. a joke. Yeah. I, no, I, it's not no okay. She was, she was like, "Who's this hipster moving into peak skill?" Oh, right, yeah. Okay. Here, you know, so uh, one of the things I like about Instagram is you don't ever have to uh, see the nose. You know what I mean? Like, you never have. Well, for the most part, unless somebody's a real dick and they make a shitty comment, but like, you don't have to see the people look at your work and then watch that. You know, shock in their right. face when they find out how much it is, or or look at the, like you could tell they're like judging it or whatever. You know, Instagram is like, yeah, look at it, and I have no idea who's seen it or how they felt about it. The only thing that I get is the positive stuff when people message me to say, hey, I really like it. Maybe I'll buy it, you know? So it's nice to not, have, you know, trade shows, obviously you got to deal with people walking by your table and like picking shit up and kind of, you know, having this like <laughs> ho-hum kind of look on their face oh. and putting it back. I'm like, I don't, ugh, I don't want to have to deal with that. We, you almost did last time we talked. I know. Last time we talked, you I were know. about to go to the Blade Show. Well, I, your first I, yeah, time, right? I wouldn't have had a table though that time. I would have just gone to look to just check it out, um, which in the end would have been. Oh, I mean, you, you, your advice actually that in that case was great too. You told me, you know, go take a class with Nick, <laughs> and I did, oh, and yeah. it was awesome. I used the money I'd saved up to go to Blade, and I went down to the New England School of Blacksmithing, and I took a course with Nick Rossi, and uh, I mean, I recommend did that you, to everybody. Did it change the way you do things? Yeah, well, so I, when I first started making knives, I was living way up in northern Quebec. I was living in a little native community where my wife was the principal of the school. And um, I quit my job to move there with her. That was, I quit my first, after a year of graduating, or a year after graduating from uh, design, I had a job designing faucets and I fucking hated it. And I realized, what the really? hell, what am I doing with my life? And then she got offered this job to move up north and teach, uh, or not teach, but be a, be a principal in the elementary school. And, and we had a two-year-old daughter and I was sick of living in the city. And I was like, yes, let's go. So anyway, we moved up there. And so shortly thereafter, I started making knives, but we were living super isolated. So it's not like I could just like find out who the other knife makers were around me and go and hang out with them. So for the first pretty much three years of making knives, I'd never met another knife maker. I'd never picked up anyone else's work. Um, and so going to the New England School of Metalwork and meeting other knife makers, other people who are interested in knife making, and, you know, if you're going to hang out with another knife maker, Nick, Nick Rossi's a pretty great guy to be hanging out with. She's Louise. So uh, that, that whole experience, not only, you know, did I learn what I learned from taking that class, but I had the benefit of making some connections with other knife makers that, you know, have turned out to be great. And um Actually, Nick introduced, sort of ref, referred me to a master smith who lives only an hour away from me, who I didn't, had never heard of, Christoph Derringer, uh, who's one of the original guys from, you know, back in, I think, the 80s. And so, then, so 
through his sort of referral, I was able to meet him and take classes with him. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was like my introduction to the other people who do this because up until then I was this island and no one else, (laughs) I had no contact with anyone else who did this. It's, you know, PS, I mean, if you, Nick Rossi is one of the great teachers of all time. Yeah. His grasp of metalworking is, I don't think it's second to none. I I think that I honestly believe, and not that I know that many, I don't think that there's a better knife making teacher in the United States. Like he's prolific. Like he can teach you everything. And he's also, he's also not knowledgeable. He's respectful. He's funny. He's he's something about these main guys these main new hampshire guys they all have a little bit of an edge which is fine you know that's just the way i just something about them i mean i I didn't didn't find that personally but oh really no not really i mean i don't know yeah you go yeah another 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 star for nick rossi no he's (laughs) he's incredible but i mean i i think that when you know i like to when I, i try to think about innovation and stuff like that and i just feel like he's such a grassroots teacher and he's so smart and but he's still willing to kind of like be innovative mm-hmm. like that he did a like a forge survival knife and it was so cool he like forged the pipe and you know all this stuff and it was yeah you know, the thing was forge welded and and then he does these you know these complicated um you know not forge knives with like uh bolt with uh riveted on extra handles and you know it's all steel construction or maybe you'll throw some brass on there he'll he'll use old school uh you know design from like art deco period to make these things Mm -hmm. and he's just he's got such a there's a quality to the person that he is that when you get i know he's a journeyman smith but when you think about like someone who's like he doesn't need to be a master he's you just feel like he's enjoying his he's enjoying teaching he's enjoying kind of doing his thing he's kind of like i mean he's just like the consummate consummate you know, artisan artist right. he's growing as an artist, you know, and his, yeah. And his work is really creative. I mean, it's, it's yeah, yeah, he's doing he things that, you know, I would never have thought of. And, and it's, it's awesome to see, but his, his, his ability mixed with his ability to communicate is what makes him a great teacher because yeah. you can know everything in the world and just be the shittiest teacher. Right. I mean, if you don't yeah. know how to tell people how to do what you do, then, you know, good for you like go and do your thing but you're not going to help me at all you know so he's a good teacher and i think that's one of the really you know one of the things that really sets him apart from some of the other people who i've spent time with who really know their shit but aren't really that great at you know downloading that information into your brain that's the hardest part yeah the hardest part i think people realize is when i was at the center for mental arts back in the early 2000s and we were teaching we were having classes being taught you know, the only teacher I ever knew really was Uri Hoffi and he was a great teacher. You like, you left, you left the classes with like two, four, five gallon buckets full of steel that you had forged for a week. It was, wow. it was really cool. But you start to meet other knife, other blacksmiths and you hear the teaching and they're just not explaining it to the point where you really have a strong understanding. Right. It isn't easy. It isn't easy. No, no, that's right. And, and I think it means you have, I mean, knowing how to do it and knowing how to teach it, uh, requires looking at what you do a very different way. Right. Um, so you've got to be kind of dedicated to, you know, getting your, getting your processes to the point where they can actually be explained clearly and you're not just doing things like you can know how to do it, but that's not, that's not enough. Yeah. 
I think that, you know, I, I'm under the impression that they're still, I know that the Center for Metal Arts is still teaching classes and uh, I give them, well, I give uh, New England School of Metalwork and the uh, Center for Metal Arts a huge, huge COVID points because yeah. anytime I see pictures from any of those places. They're doing they're it. They're still up and running. Yeah. Dude, I, I was talking, when I was talking to Nick, uh, Nick Angers, I got a message from Pat Quinn thanking me for saying, I'm really glad that you noticed that we're you really being very careful because you know, these schools, this is what they depend on. And, and, and I, and I think that they're being really, really careful like, to the point where he was so happy that I talked about how COVID responsible they were. Right. Pat, Pat wants to come on the show and, you know, as a thank you, he's a, he's a elusive guy. So the fact that he wants to come on is, it means something. Okay. Right on. But, um, but I, I, Back to what you were saying about you were designing faucets. <laughs> when you got out of school yeah. as an industrial designer, what was the first job you you took? Well, I didn't get hired right away um, because I don't know for whatever reason I just couldn't find a job right away. So I so I did a few freelance things, and then I just kind of fell back on uh, the furniture that I, background that I'd been doing. So I was able to do a few jobs where I designed furniture and then had it made. So I didn't have to do the making of the furniture, which at first I thought was pretty cool because. You know, it's like, oh, I can just draw it and then somebody else makes it. How nice. But, you know, I did start to miss the hands-on aspect of it. But yeah, the first, the first job that I got was at this company in Montreal, you know, uh, that manufactured faucets, you know, bathroom faucets, kitchen faucets. And um, one of the guys who graduated a couple of years before me from the same program was already working there. And I think his recommendation helped me get the job. But um yeah, you know, honestly, like, I don't think there was anything wrong with the job other than the fact that it was a job and, 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 you know, like an office type job. And, uh, and I had thought I had done that type of work before I'd worked as a temp and, you know, I'd, I'd worked, um, I'd worked in offices. I'd done telemarketing, of course, and all that kind of shit. But I always thought, oh, it's not so much being in the office. That's the problem. It's because I'm doing something that, you know, I'm, I'm not trained for. And therefore I'm not getting that level of satisfaction that you get when you are able to do something to a high level. Um, And so when I graduated and I got that job, I thought, okay, so this is it. This is like the beginning of my career. um, And, you know, we're going to, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. But that didn't happen, obviously. I mean, designing faucets. Ah, That's like, yeah, it's another thing that's fascinating because all of a sudden you have these, to me, it's interesting because it's not making sculpture. You know, you're, what you're doing is, is you're making something that has a purpose. So like mm-hmm. when, you're, when they give you your first thing and you're like, okay, you know, Noah, we need you to design a faucet. Where do you go from there? Well, do you start out with like the, the basic function of it or, you know, you have certain de- parameters in regards to how the water comes out. How does it, how does it. Yeah. The truth, the truth is the guts are more or less the same, right? I mean, almost, right. almost every kitchen faucet has a certain uh, flow rate that's regulated by a cartridge. And there are a few different cartridges on the market, but more or less, they all perform the same function. They're, you know, they control how much hot and how much cold water gets blended. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, the guts of every faucet work pretty much exactly the same way. So essentially what you're doing is you're making a pretty case for it. Right. And that's, that's more or less what industrial design is. Like industrial design, they, they often say it's like what an architect is to a building an industrial designer is to you know, a, a mass produced product. It's like sure. we design sort of like the shell, the exterior, um, the guts are more or less for the most part done by engineers. Um, right. And so, so yeah, so the job involved mostly just designing faucets that were 
copies of other faucets that were fashionable at the time. And, you know, the direction that the company was taking was not something that I was too inspired by. They were more or less knocking off, you know, Italian faucets and having them manufactured in China and then slapping their, you know, their name on it and distributing them in, you know, hardware stores and home reno stores, you know, whatever. Um, But it was, yeah, it didn't, it didn't feel good. It didn't feel good to be doing that kind of work. And, and overall, just that the thing that I really didn't like about working in industrial design is the, the short lifespan of most of the products that you're working to design. Like for the most part, it's either planned obsolescence or it's just obsolescence as a result of decisions made to cut costs. But um, you're designing a, a thing that's meant to look attractive, but eventually end up in a landfill. And I just found that like kind of depressing. What do you think? What did you, why do you, do you, when you think about planned obsolescence? Yeah. I mean, do you, did you ever see a real, like, did you ever have a conversation with the uh, superior saying, all right, you know, this is, because when, when you were first talking about it, I thought maybe it was about style. The style was going to go out of, you know, you know, the style was going to go out of uh, fashion. Well, that's part of it but for like, sure. Yeah. But the planned obsolescence is such a fascinating thing, especially as a custom knife maker. Like, well. you know. You hope that, yeah, you hope that when you're making a knife that it won't become obsolete, you know. Obviously, you know that every time you sharpen it, it gets a little smaller, but you hope that there's enough material there that it'll like at least last a lifetime. I think one of the things that as a counter to planned obsolescence, one of my favorite teachers in industrial design, he said, um, if you can create a relationship between a product and a user that is strong enough, it will outlive the optimal functioning of that product, right? It's like, you right. you know, if you've got a toaster and you just love it so damn much, but you have to like push it down three times to get the goddamn bread toast, you know, but you've had it for 20 years and you just like the way it looks and, you know, so it doesn't work perfectly anymore, but you, you hold on to it anyway, because, because there's something about it you like, who knows what that is. It could just be the way it looks. It could be the way it feels, the way it sounds, the way it functions, where you got it, who knows. But that relationship that, a user forms with a product has so much to do with how long that product is going to be in use. Um, and so like when I first started making knives, actually before I started making knives, one of the things that always fascinated me was these like old hunting knives that had been sharpened down to the point where they were like little spikes, you know, like little toothpicks. Yeah. And that was, I was like, yes, that's an, a perfect example of someone who formed a relationship with a product that, that kept them using it like way beyond the point where you would have said, okay, this isn't really working very well anymore. I'm going to chuck it out and get a new one. Um, so that's something that I try to kind of keep in mind a lot when I'm making knives is that like I need to encourage the, the relationship to bond the bond, you know, the, the person to bond with it, you know, I, 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 I that's, that's outstanding. And, I, and it's definitely also the idea that a lot of people don't like change. So it is hard. I think that people are, I think plant obsolescence is such a crazy concept and it's such, it's yeah, to the point sure. where it's either, it's either, it's either total ignorance, greed, or just basic evilness because it's like, what, you know, how are you, how can you, how, you know, it, there's the greed level to it is so high. Like mm-hmm. I, I've always felt, especially, and we're going to just, just off-roading just a little bit sure. years ago. I remember when, before my daughter was born and we had in our apartment, we had dial up for our computer and I hated it because I was just like, I'm not, this is, it takes forever to get on the internet. And stuff like that. I hated 
I hated all the upgrades. I hated the fact that technology is constantly making you upgrade your software, upgrading mm-hmm. your computer. All of a sudden your computer can't, you can't go on this particular website and stuff like that. And I always said to my wife, I said, you know, there is going to be, there's going to be this class, this, this huge technological class system, a cast system based on technology. And it's like, I, I find the planned obsolescence to be so, it's almost, it's, it, to me, is it, it is a, there's a total evilness. Yeah, there. it's nefarious. I agree. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, and at the same time, it's, in a lot of cases, it's like driven by the user, right? right. I mean, I don't want this phone anymore. It's slow, you know? The new apps don't work on it. So I'm going to ditch it. It's perfectly fine, but I want the new one. Like, we've kind of, I don't know if it's been because we've been conditioned or if it's just because we can afford to so what the fuck but but we do this as users we get bored we expect so much from the things that we buy you know right. like we order things from amazon and we get really excited when it's on the way you know we're thinking about it oh look at the tracking you know it's going to be here tomorrow and then you know you get it you open up the box and you just kind of like, oh, what was i thinking you know <laughs> and but like we we put so much pressure on these things that we spend our money on to make us happy yeah so I yeah. tell you what, it's, it's a strain. It's a, the human mind is we have such, we have such problems in terms of how we deal with things. And that is a hundred percent sure it's you're hoping something is going to make you happy. And then you finally get it and it doesn't do shit. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. It's just like, I just remember, I remember um, when I first started getting into Instagram and I was talking to my business partner, I was like, and then we were about to hit 20, uh, 10,000 followers. And I was like, you know, when these things are going to change, we get that swipe up, things are going to change. <laughs> yeah. We got the 10,000 followers. I never, never felt like, you know, I never cheered. And then, you know, we get to 20,000 is the same thing. And I, and I stopped, <laughs> I stopped it. I, I said, he's like, he would say, he's like, oh, you're almost close to this. And I, and I would get to the point where I was just like, I don't care. I, I don't, it doesn't give me any happiness. It doesn't give me any extra happiness at all. Like I was expecting there to be some, it's almost like when you're on your birthday, when you turn it, you know, right. all of a sudden it's your birthday and you're expecting there to be a difference. And then you're just like, there's fucking no difference. No, it's same, the same asshole fucking- in the mirror. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is buying these things that you think that you want, don't give you any, sa- any satisfaction, but you, what you said about, um, it's always the user. When you were talking about that, I was thinking about knives. It's, it's always, it is really the user. I mean, a lot of Americans in general don't sharpen their knives. That's why they're all these, I mean, I'm just speaking for Americans because mm. I just get, we get inundated with questions on sh- knife sharpening. Right. And I would, and, and there's some people don't need to sharpen their knives because they never use their knife versus I was dealing with these butchers. They are sharpening their knives every day. Yep. And these butchers are like, we're going to do this project, but I'm really nervous about it because it's just like, you, you're you're expecting to have the same type of performance with i mean i i, I still want to get a call in five years saying this thing's a toothpick like it's like well i mean they're not a lot of their knives they they burn through them and burn through i did a project rehandling a knife for a butcher and i got a chance to kind of see some of the some of the ways that he used his knife and he had this like electric sharpener right right that like it's like a pencil sharpener kind of thing and you like drag the blade through it that thing took off like a 16th of width almost every time you sharpened it like it removed a lot of material obviously it's fast so that's why they do it right you can just like drag your knife through and it's crazy sharp but they're not expecting these blades to last no. very long i don't think so if you're investing in a you know a fancy handled like higher end really good quality steel knife that you're going to then use like that 
I think the expectation has to be different than, you know, somebody who's just going to like carve the roast three times a year with it or something like that. It's not going to last then, as long. Yeah, but it, there is this sense of like, when you talk about uh, not liking change or the, the planned obsolescence, these guys, they, they'll use their knives until they're like these like toothpicks. And there is this sense of like, this is what I like. Yeah. And there is something beautiful about that. Yeah. You know, there's beautiful about that change, you know? I had a butcher show me his hog sticker, his pig sticker. He, he, his dad had given it to him who, who was a butcher when he was like 12 years old. And it was still the knife that he used for like dispatching pigs. So right. he'd like killed. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of gruesome to think of, but you know, his whole butcher career, every pig he'd slaughtered had been with that knife. So talk about a relationship that you'd have to a knife. You know, it's been with you your entire, this guy was like, he's in his eighties now and he's still, still yeah. working as a butcher. So this, this knife's been with him his whole, his whole career. Um, you know, you can, you can imagine that if it's maybe not the sharpest he's, or, you know, he's going to keep that thing and he's going to use it until it's done until it is a toothpick, you know, there is something about that. That's just, there's a sacredness to it that I really appreciate. I actually have a friend of mine who was the butcher. He was the, he was the, the, uh, he wasn't the butcher. Uh, he was uh, raising the, the pigs and the cattle and the, and the ducks uh, for stone barns. And okay. uh, it's a restaurant in New York, okay. uh, uh, kind of like a, on the Rockefeller estate. It's Dan Barber. It's a very famous, you know, they raised everything. And I he became friends with this farmer and he ended up leaving and working at a, you know, a hog farm and they were raising hogs. And then he was involved with the, you know, the dispatching, which is kind of a, you know, this gruesome situation, yeah. but he was explaining it to me. Like it's you, you, you end up, it's a very solemn affair. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's, he says, like, I never take it for granted. I'm never excited and I'm never sad, but there was this solemnness to it that I would imagine that if you are a butcher and you're using this one knife for all these years, you grab this attachment because it's like, it's this, it's kind of looking into the person that you are, but it's like, it's also your partner and it, it through mm -hmm. something that's a very, it's a very difficult situation. It's like a witness too, right? Yeah, it's a witness. Yeah, yeah exactly. It is a witness. See, I, I see you're, you're too smart to tell me that you were fool, fooling around till you were in your twenties. I, <laughs> I believe that you're a very, you've all, we, we have conversations. You're very thoughtful and you're very well-spoken. So I find it hard to believe oh. that you were some like goofball, you know, like doing odds and end jobs. Well, I was, I mean, I was writing songs and I was thinking I was going to be a, you know, make, have a career doing music. And so that was where I was kind of putting all my effort. So everything else kind of outside of that, um, was just uh, the, the, you know, the cogs that kept the machine going. And they were just like, it was like, ah, okay, I got to put some energy into that now. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I've, I've always pretty well been driven by my interests and I have a lot of interests, you know, and, and they've changed over the years, of course. Um, but I've never been highly motivated by money. Um, there were years where... I, you know, I ran out of money on a regular basis. Like I would, you know, it was kind of like, I would use the analogy. It was like a plane running out of gas and it starts to like go in for a crash landing. And then all of a sudden it gets a fuel injection and it takes off again. So that was like, you know, the two, three days before the next paycheck was always, I was, my belly was always scraping the ground, you know? Um, and I got, to, I just got used to that. I got used to that lifestyle and I got, I, I kind of, you know, I liked, I liked living outside of the expectations that I think everyone else had on me. 
had from but it also i would imagine it also makes you a little bit more hungry and also a little bit more uh being able to be uh risky take risky decisions i mean every decision i took would have been considered risky by most people i think but I mean, if you're if you're thinking that I'm going to be a famous musician, then pretty much everything else seems way more responsible by comparison. You know what I mean? <laughs> like anything yeah. else I did other than that was going to seem like, well, that seems like a sensible move. You know, so yeah. if I was like, OK, I'm going to make guitars like that seems like a pretty risky proposition. It's like, well, how are you going to make money? Who's going to support you? I mean, that's going to take a long time before you can get any money in. It's like, well, but it's what I want to do. But there is something noble in regards to actually not noble, but there's, there's a point about the fact that when you do something that you actually like and not worry about the money, hopefully if you do a good enough job, the money will come. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, obviously there are pretty important pieces of puzzle that have to be there. And I think as a young man, I, I wasn't paying any attention to them. Um, I remember, so I had, I had a family doctor who gave me some really good advice. This was, this was the doctor who was my mother's doctor when she was pregnant with me. So this is the doctor who gave me stitches when I split my chin as a four-year-old, you know, like he knew my whole file. In fact, when he retired, he gave me my file back and it was like three inches thick of all of the, you know, every time I'd come in there for like, you know, I want a blood test because, you know, I just got a new girlfriend or, you know, silly shit like that. Um, so when I went to see him, he, he'd retired, but he kept his office open and he had a little sign outside that said, uh, the fee for a visit is $25. Um, if you can't afford it, just say, thanks doc. Uh, and so I went to see him cause I was visiting my folks and I was back in this part of part of the world again. And I went to see him for, I don't know what it was, something silly. And I asked him like, what are you, what are you doing? You're retired. Like, why, why are you still working? Like you, you, he'd given up his insurance, he'd given up his license. So he couldn't even write you a prescription, but he could refer you to somebody else. And he, it was like a, it was a real comfort to the community, honestly. Right. And he said to me, if you find something that you enjoy doing, uh, find something that you love to do and you'll never work. Find, sorry, I, I screwed that up. It said, right. find a way to make money doing something you love and you'll never have to work another day in your life. And I know that's a, you know, it's probably printed on pillows somewhere, but it was the first time <laughs> I had heard it. And so it really kind of resonated with me. I was like, ah, right. Okay. So that, that's, that's kind of like what I should be looking for. It's like, find something I love. Now, that's only one piece of the puzzle, obviously. There's other important pieces. But um. That was definitely one of the things that like kind of stuck with me and, 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 you know, drove me. And, and then, you know, you, you start, you have a family and then like, man, your, your priorities get thrown up in the air completely. Right. You know, you have a kid and all of a sudden it's like, not just you in that airplane that's running out of gas every month, you right, know, you've got right. passengers. Yeah. And so that really changed the way that I looked at what I was doing with my life and how to frame these things that I loved to do in such a way that they, you know, might lead to some success. And, and there were a lot of failures along the way. But, but when I first started making knives, like I was saying before, I was like, ah, this is, this is something good. This is something's, something's right about this. Do you still love it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so when the first like three years, I basically saw as this is knife making university, right? So this right. is, so I, 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 you know, ate, slept, breathed knife making videos books um your wife doesn't want to hear about it anymore. Oh god that that's 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 the true test if you're obsessed <laughs> you're, if whoever you're living with don't want to hear about it anymore you don't give a shit yeah that happened pretty quick that happened pretty quick but um 
but then there's that other thing that they say, right, which is behind every knife maker is a woman with a real job. (laughs) So in my case, 100% true. You know, there were definitely times there after we moved up north and I didn't have a, I didn't have another job. I just quit my industrial design job, you know. Uh, she was making okay coin and our house was subsidized. So like I had time to figure shit out. I had time to try different things out, which is kind of what eventually led to um, starting to make a knife. Like you were saying, it's a small, it's a small product. You don't need a big shop, right? You know, you don't need a big investment to, to like get your feet wet. Uh, Right. So, so anyway, yeah. And then this year was the first year where I could look at how, how I did and say, I did pretty much as well as I would have done if I'd stuck with industrial design, like financially. Really? And so that was like a big kind of milestone for me. I was like, aha, you know, like that wasn't a mistake quitting my job. So like, you know, I managed to, I managed to create a level of financial security in a very different way than what I thought was the way I was supposed to do it. Um, and that, so that's, that's pretty rewarding, you know, to know that, like, super yeah, and, and to know that I, you know, I love what I do. I've never loved what I do this way yeah. before. It's, it's super interesting you mentioned that because, you know, with, with what we, what I've done is I really tried to decide, make a decision that I wanted to be serious and I took on a business partner who I'm grateful to. And we have, you know, insurance and rent and we mm-hmm. have, you know, all the things that you have to do paying taxes and sales tax and doing all the rent and all that stuff. And, you know, the, I, sometimes I go to kill my, I kick myself because, you know, when we, when we look at what we made over the year, we did great. And all I can think of is we did great. If I didn't have to pay everybody else, yeah, yeah. Like if I didn't have to, if I didn't have to pay the rent, if I didn't have to pay, um, you know, the rent on two places really, and then pay my partner and then pay the government and pay the, Mm -hmm. the gross was fantastic. And then you look at what, you know, you, what you're sending to your accountant, you're just like, you you put your head in your hands a little bit and you're just like, we're getting by, everything's fine, but I'm not at the point where I would be if I was a professional, uh, if I've stayed on track as a fabricator, you know, so it does, it does, you have to have that degree of like, I can gut it out some more to the point where I'm growing, I'm growing steadily. And that's where we're Yeah. At. You but haven't plateaued time, yet. I mean, right. I mean, like every no. year is a bigger year than the last year. Right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so it's great. But it, it gets to the point where you, you say to yourself, it's not fast enough. Mm. Like that's the thing. And, and, and for me, especially it's like, you know, the podcasts are doing great. I mean, you know, knife talk, we're, we're, you know, we made some money last year. That's I mean, great. I mean, we had to split it three, it had to split three ways. But I mean, yeah. it was like when Craig told us how we did with sponsors, I was kind of surprised. You weren't expecting and it. I wasn't expecting yeah. it. No, I wasn't expecting it. I was proud of what we were doing, which was great. And then, you know, all, all the sponsors are just like, you know, they French kiss us when they see us. I mean, it's like <laughs> nonsense. But when, but, you know, the funny thing is with this, I still love it and I have to love it. And I, because I believe in it. Right. And I think that the hard part is, is I think that there's a lot of people who they see people with their, in their mind, the concept of what fame or what, uh, you know, doing well in businesses. And I don't think they have a real good grasp in regards to what it takes to kind of, you know, be not only you have to juggle being happy and being able to support your family. Yeah, that's right. And it, it, yeah, those, those two aren't always congruous. 
No, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I said that. I said that too quickly. I almost said never. I shouldn't have said never. I, you know, <laughs> it's I, obviously not I never. Sometimes, but yeah. Sometimes, no, yeah, but it's sometimes. it can be tricky for sure. And then, of course, as an entrepreneur, like as a guy who's in his shop more or less alone most days, um, it's really easy to uh, use too small of a data set to um, take a, take a, you know, a temperature reading on how you're doing. You know, if you right. have like a couple of bad days in a row, you'll be like, this isn't working. Oh, right. I'm going to have to look for work or something, you know, and then you have a couple of good days and you're like, I could coast. I'm great. You know, so it's like Dude. ups and downs, man. It's, uh, but that's what makes it exciting too, you know, in a certain way. Yeah. Um, I like still get a thrill uh, every time I complete a knife. Um, and, you know, every time I make a, a sale, every time I get a, a message from someone who says they got it and they're happy with it, like those things are soul feeding. I mean, right. for me, that's something that yeah. keeps me excited about what I do. I don't think there are very many jobs that you can do where you get that amount of like regular positive feedback no it's really well, because great it's a, because it's, it's the manifestation of what you want to make you know it's 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 like it's taking i i mean i think that in my opinion i think one of the most important parts about what we do is or what any maker does is having control over your life and having discipline mm -hmm. definitely discipline to me is like is more important than anything else. I started out as a sculptor and, you know, like I was just thought I could just anything I made was going to be great. You know, and, and it, that was a young, you know, good looking kid in New York city during the nineties. I just thought that, you know, everything's going to be easy. Sure. And, I, and I didn't have the discipline of, you know, being able to say, okay, this is right. Or this isn't right. I had the discipline to go into my shop every day, but I didn't have the discipline in terms of turning out something that I was really proud of. Right. And I think that I think that the discipline is the most clutch thing, and it's it's what we were talking. You were talking about uh, you know, you have some bad days where you're coasting, and then there's some good days where you're. I think the discipline to get through the coasting days, or the discipline mm -hmm. to get through the bad days, is almost more important than the satisfaction of of getting those sales. You know, sure, sure. I mean, uh, having a regular routine, holding yourself accountable. Um, those are things that you need to do in order to be able to have a business as a maker, you know, and they have these amazing, uh, I would not even, not side benefits, but like they are beneficial on their own. It's like, you know, if you want to, if you want to run a business, if you want to run a, you know, you got to have a little structure to your life, right? You got to be right. disciplined. You got to kick yourself in the ass every once in a while in order to do that thing that you want to do. But at the same time, that act of kicking yourself in the ass is so good for you. It's so good for your head. Um, and, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, I think, I think I've never been more mentally healthy than I am now that I'm doing what I do. Um, and I've never had, I guess, like fewer, like less self doubt than I do right now because of what I'm doing. Um, so, the, the yeah the benefits of all of that discipline and all of that hard work and it's tremendous i got to tell you i feel very similar because since i started this business actually since i really got this my new shop which is like maybe 3 4 years old mm. i this is the first time i haven't been anxious at night mm. 
when I was when I was the lead man, not the lead man. I was the I was always I, every shop I've ever been in. I was the number two guy. Okay, I was an awesome number two guy, and I enjoyed. Actually, I was talking to uh, Keith Johnson last week, and we were talking about how he liked working under a manager. And right. I said to me, it's the same thing. Like I had created relationships with the lead men at the shops that I worked at, and I actually I appreciated the fact. I liked the fact that I was in charge of, you know, getting the tools right or getting this right or making sure that when we got on the installation, the installation went by fast. I got satisfaction out of that. But I just, I, I always was anxious. There were nights where I would go to bed and we'd pack the car, we'd pack the truck up. Uh, when I was at the Center for Mental Arts, I remember I was working under John Ledford, who is um, just an extraordinary blacksmith and fabricator, probably the best fabricator I ever met. And he was great and he taught me everything. He taught me more than anybody else. Mm. And I was responsible for loading the truck up. He would, I don't know, he wouldn't say it, but it was just like, I'll help. I will design this thing. I'll get it ready. I'll get it. You're in charge of making sure that all the tools are on the truck. So there were like these nights where I would get like, I'd have these panic. Did I remember this? Did I remember that? What if, did I bring enough screw? Did I bring enough drill bits for the, to tap or, do I don't you know if if anything happens on the installation we've forgotten something it's the clock is ticking yep. the clock is ticking and the meter's running and I've always felt especially before any type of installations or something like that I felt incredible anxiety yeah. since I've started doing this I've never had a night of anxiety that's amazing yeah and I, I, I couldn't I can't explain it you know my my once in a while you get a, a message from a customer who's who's we, I had to come to the conclusion that they're excited. And it wasn't the where's my knife emails weren't like, where's my knife? It's right. like, I'm excited. I'm where, well, how are we doing? Right. I had to make that adjustment between being criticized, you know, thinking it's a criticism to just, you know, excitement. And now I don't get anxious. I don't come into the shop afraid. Right. Or yeah. like, or like, you know, anxious really. Because you're mostly just accountable to yourself. You don't have a boss. I mean, obviously, right. yes, you have a certain responsibility to your clients, but it's not, it's not the same. I mean, in the end, this is you in your shop doing things the way you want to do them. And you can say, look, I just don't want to take on that job. I know it's going right. to be nothing but trouble for me. You can decide how you want to do it. I choose to just bend over backwards for my customers because to me, I get an immense sense of satisfaction in their satisfaction you know like i'm not happy if you're not happy like that's that's how i feel about it so it's not i don't do it out of a sense of like being beholden to them i do it because it's like i know that if i do this then they'll be happy and that'll make me happy so i mean it's a selfish motivation in the end like like just, every motivation well, like, that we have more or less let's admit is you know but, yeah but um a hundred percent it's also self-serving because you know that if you're if you give good customer service you don't get problems yeah and you you get good word of mouth and all of this kind of stuff right. too but but yeah, I, I think that for me, that was the thing I had a hard time with. Like every job that I had where I had a boss, there was this anxiety that I felt where I was like accountable right. to that person and being judged by that person. Am I good enough? Did I remember this? Yeah, I can totally relate. And I'm so happy not to have that in my life anymore. And when it comes down to it, frankly, it's irreplaceable. <laughs> when you're working for someone, there used to be this whole thing. I remember, you know, talking to cooks and, and or, or whatever, and they would say, well, they, I could never, they could, if they, if they lost me or if I wasn't working here, the place would fall apart. That's all. The person who says that is always the, the most wrong. Like <laughs> yeah. every job you're at, everybody's always replaceable, except for there's certain situations. I've been in shops where there was a guy or two that was like, this guy leaves, we are fucked. Right. But other than that, you know, 
when you're making your product that people want to buy from you, you are irreplaceable because they want what you're making. That's right. I mean, and of course, that's also linked to one of the difficulties in scaling this type of business is because you cannot, you yourself can't be replaced, right? As, right. as the, you know, jet, if people buy a knife from Jeff Fader, they want him to make it. You know, right. they want the email from him. I mean, I know it's different with you. You got a, your business partner who I think does some of the, like the client relations side of things, I think, right? Um, at the beginning. Stuff. At the beginning. Okay. So he's kind of like sort of weeding or sort, sorting, right. sorting through the incoming. Yeah. yeah okay. But he's the guy with the clam, with the clam digger and trying to get rid of the sand and hopefully get a clam or two. That's nice. You that's know? nice. Cause I, I mean, that, that's, right. that's a lot of hours. I mean, I, dude, I, I, that's our biggest yeah. problem. I spend at least a good it's two hours problem. a day on stuff like that. And it's, uh, that is our biggest, you know. biggest problem. That's why we have, we're changing things because it's like, you know, you literally, you get emails and you, I'm sure you've gotten them. You'll, you get these wacko emails that you know is not, nothing's going to happen from them. And you have yeah. to, you know, you respond back you're wrong to two or sometimes, three emails, but you're usually right. Like your gut, right. your gut is usually right. Yeah. 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 Well, this is, but th this is the be the best part of not of knowing. I think subconsciously not being anxious is because you're all of a sudden you're subconsciously creating self worth hmm. because you're you you know if this person wants to pay four five six hundred dollars for one of my knives or whatever, yeah, that I must be better than I better than I've been giving myself credit for or whatever, right? right? Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. You know? I don't know. I don't think that there's a better feeling I have until, in, unless I get repeat business from customers from like a couple of years ago. Because then all of a sudden you're just like, my, it wasn't that bad. Like, yeah. I always yeah. think about, I always think about older stuff, like even to the point where it's just like, if it, six months ago I wasn't even as into it as I am now. So I always think, well, if I can see these incremental changes and my customers can too, and then I'll get these messages from people I've sent, I made a knife for four years ago and they want to order something else. And the funny thing is I have to like, you know, they want to make a set. And I'm just like, Oh Jesus Christ, I have to make a fucking set. This one's going to be better than this. This, this is going to be a real drop off. The set is going to be fucking weird right. because the first knife is like a cleaver. Right. And then it, but it's a nine inch chef knife. And now I'm making these like, you know, much thinner, lighter blades. It is going to be quite a drop off the distance between the first one to the second one. But I, yeah. I, I mean, I wonder how much of those things that seem, uh, just gigantic to us are, picked up like i show every knife that i make pretty much not every okay not every knife i show at least one out of every batch to my wife just i'll be like pick it up just pick it up just tell me whatever comes to mind i just want to know is there something are you like oh, it's like is it too heavy is it too weird is this you know usually she's like it's looks like a knife it's nice it looks yeah. like your other knives what do you right. want me to tell you i mean I'm like yeah but look at this the way i did this little transition isn't that better like, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, yeah. and so I think a lot of the times we, yeah, we, we go way up our own asses on this shit. We think all this stuff is like, you know, fundamental, you know, shifts in our style or, or methodology or whatever. And I'm not so sure that, that other people are noticing it, you know, the way we are. This is, this is one of the things that's great and bad about social media because, you know, uh, you befriend other knife makers 
and then you, you're able to kind of like you're able to see what other people are doing and you're able to compare and contrast mm-hmm. and you say i need to make more like that and then you wonder you take a picture and are they going to notice that little blemish there or are they going to notice when i you know the light of the of the sky if the sky's blue then the knife's going to be blue right. and then all of a sudden it's going to look weird and they want you wonder am i going to get criticized because of you know the file work looks a certain way or and it gets to the point where your customers i i learned that my customers they don't they don't see those things it's a two way it's a double edged sword because you end up working harder because you want to be accepted in your in in a community mm-hmm. because they'll be the ones to say oh, look at that thing is terrible but at the same time oh, they're not buying your knives though they're not buying your knives yeah. right yeah they're not buying your knives so yeah that's right it's tricky cuz you end up trying to please the wrong person sometimes yeah and yeah. you often find yourself like wasting time on details that you think are super crucial, but other people like the, you know, if the client doesn't give a shit, then you've kind of wasted your time. A hundred percent. You know, that's the, that's the hard, that's one of the hardest parts is like, is, is, is then making that, you know, you're, you're weighing your options in regards to what do I cut loose mm-hmm. on this, on this project? Because, you know, it's not the, I mean, it's not, usually it's not the materials that's the most expensive part of the labor. So how are we going to like address an issue that my customers don't care about yeah. that I care about, but I don't really care about it. And then kind of justify getting rid of that or, you know, cutting my time down. Right being more efficient. I think that's, that's one of the more, more that part of problem solving as a maker is probably one of the most interesting parts. And I think that there's a lot of people who don't get that ability to deal with customers in that regards. And I, and I do like, yeah, it's, it's a shame in a way that every, pretty much every client other than family member, um, I've never met them face to face. They never got a chance to see their face when they open the box, mm-hmm. you know, and and as a result, I'm maybe missing out on some feedback, right? I mean, feedback yeah. is like that's really valuable stuff. I'm pretty bad at like I mean, I should have like a follow up email that goes out automatically to every person who buys a knife with some kind of like, hey, let us know what you think, or you know, like okay. I suck at that stuff. Like I, I could, I couldn't. No, I, I, it just it feels weird, you know. It's like whenever you're writing. about your business like you you feel like you want to say we when it's really i you you know what i mean it's like i don't know there's something about am i am i is it just noah vashon in his shop and am i just going to be honest about the fact that that's really what it is um or am i going to try to pretend to be something more than i really am and so i guess with those you know that type of like customer like here's a survey let us know how we did that like that kind of just feels false but the truth is that's important information. So I'm more or less just depending on the generosity of my clients to every once in a while, take a minute and reach out and say, Hey, got it. It's great. Or I like this about it. Or if I was getting another one, I might ask for this to be different, which, and of course that's the most valuable, which you get the least is like constructive criticism. Like it's great when somebody says they're happy with a knife, but usually what I really would love to know is like, what don't you like? Right. The 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 best constructive criticism I ever got was when I sent some knives to some friends, and one of them was a good cook, and he said, "I really want you to this part. It hurts my hand when I hold mm. it. You know, I, I made real. It's very few and far between. But it's funny that you say you you feel weird about saying I 
or seem weird about saying we, I feel the exact opposite. Cause when I send an email, I say we, and I always think, are they going to like it better if it's just me? Mm. Cause I do have like, you know, but you have a partner. So it is a we, for, for, but at the know. same time, it's just, it sounds more, it sounds more intimate if I say, I, right. 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 <laughs> it's, it's the exact opposite of what you're doing. I'm part of me is just like, yeah, don't say we say I, but then I'm like, but then Tony's on the other end of the email and I'm just like, I don't want to pretend. I don't he's want like him you're to cutting him out. Yeah. 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 I don't want him to think like he's not part of right. this. So it's very funny. <laughs> but, um, I, no, I, I think that, I think that it's one of the hardest decisions as a maker because, you know, I make a lot of jokes about, I make nonsensical jokes about whether or not you're an artist or not mm-hmm. and, and honestly it doesn't even matter honestly when i started in with this it was completely to be contra- not too controversial you know i don't talk about politics i don't tell you what to do i don't try to be inspiring i just try to you know talk and stuff but i needed to, i needed a hook and part of it was just like i'd gotten i'd met too many people at blade show when i introduced myself to them they said i'm a knife artist right right and i just like got me crazy to the point where i was just like all right this is gonna be my bit it's a good bit. I liked it. It's a yeah. great bit. Oh, it's a great bit. But you know, the funny part is, is like I, I get crickets. I don't get. No one. No. One, I once, once in I talk, I said something, and somebody wrote me on a, a kind of a kind of mediocrely nasty email. And I think I wrote back saying, I or or I said on the podcast, I said I will only argue with people who have higher than a graduate degree and it's an art background. It was just totally obnoxious. I, yeah, really I think hilarious. I remember. That, yeah. But the funny, the the interesting thing is when you are you know, the similarities between being a knife maker or a business person and being an artist is when you're making, when you're making art and you're selling it to someone, you kind of can't handle criticism to a certain degree unless it's technical. Because what happens is, is you're giving something, someone that's part of who you are. You're very vulnerable. So getting criticism for giving your, you know, your, you know, if you, if you make a, if I made a sculpture and I said to somebody, and they say they don't like the color or they don't like this or they don't like that. It's, 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 it's too intimate of a criticism because it's like, you're giving, I'm giving you the best of what I have. So what happens is for me is I get very, it becomes, I have to fight to be able to take criticism because I'm not used to it. Uh, I'm not, no, I'm used to it. I'm used to it from teachers. I'm used to it when I was a student, but then when, when I'm talking about decision-making, it becomes very difficult. Hmm. It does. I think I think criticism is often uh, taken too personally. I I think a lot of people don't. I think a lot of people don't know how to take criticism, and in a lot of cases, it's exactly what they need to hear, right? Right. Because just saying, "Yeah, it looks great," like what a useless comment. Like honestly, let's be honest. Like if if someone comes to me and says, "Hey, I just made a knife. What do you think?" If I say, "Yeah, it looks great," I've done nothing for them. In fact, it took me no time at all to make that response. It was a lazy response on my part, right? So I think, I think criticism shows that someone actually has thought about, you know, whatever, like if it's for your knife, they've thought about your knife, they've, they've used it, and, and they reach out with some, I mean, as long as it's not nasty, as long as it's constructive, right. then they've done you a great favor. And, and you right. don't necessarily have to agree with them. I mean, it could be like, yeah, you're an idiot. Like, I don't take that, you know, and it just, just discount it. And that's fine. You can do that as long as you've heard it and weighed it and then decided you're going to let it go. But some of it's useful. Anyway. I feel like school should have more classes in regards to behavior. 
Like, mm. I feel like they're, I think that, I feel like as society, we've not learned how to inter, interact with each other in a positive way. <laughs> yeah. I had a, somebody wrote, somebody wrote to me, somebody wrote to me on, a, on one of my knives. That's really cool. It's not my cup of tea good for you <laughs> or something like it was just like it was it was a compliment right. that's that not helpful either it was a compliment like that's cool i don't like because it the least interesting cool. thing is it was whether weird. you like something or like, not it was just such a oh, strange I think I lost you, Jeff. it was such a, oh, it was such okay. a useless it was such a sometimes you'll, are you back are you back are you there i can am here me? yeah i just paused for a second i thought you were gone but i can hear you fine some this is what happens oh, this okay. is what happens sometimes it pauses so it'll be you'll be all fine it will be fine cool. this will be fine we're wrapping it up anyway sure. but i'm fascinated by the fact that i'm fascinated by the fact that um people just don't know how to interact and mm -hmm. i and i think that i think that as makers we have to figure out you almost have to like protect yourself in regards to being able to sift through what's good comment good criticism that you've asked for and what's totally meaningless and it's not going to get you crazy all the sure time. sure absolutely and and if somebody's giving you in-depth criticism based on a photograph it's not that valuable because photographs lie right i mean yeah. you can you can take a beautiful photograph of a knife that's got serious problems right the second yeah. you might pick it up you'd be like oh well that's a total piece of shit but it looked great in the picture right so if anyone's giving you you know if people give me criticisms based on seeing a picture of my work you know, i don't i don't i don't weigh that very heavily so what's next for you noah vachon well you're you're living a, you're living a beautiful life with your wonderful family yeah. in the in the wilds of canada <laughs> making knives kicking ass taking names I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to more of the same. I'm looking forward to learning. The, the thing that I love about this craft is how deep it can go um, and how many different avenues there are to explore that are related to knife making. So to me, I feel like I've got like a, a lifetime of things to sink my teeth into. Um, and so every year I try to take a bigger bite um, and, you know, process and learn more things. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing a lot more forging, playing around with my new forging press making my own steel, like making sand mine, just finally, you know, tried making stainless sand mine and it actually worked, which is, you know, super exciting. I can't wait to do more of that stuff. Um, so yeah, you know, more of the same and keeping my fingers crossed that the borders will open up and things will go back to more like normal and I can go down to Blade and take some more classes in Maine and maybe have a beer with you at some point. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm optimistic or trying to be you anyway. You sound happy. I am. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the best. That's the best. That is the best. Noah Vashon, you have an open invite. Anytime you want to come on this show, you give me a call. Thank you, brother. You give me a call. We'll do it again. You're, the, you're great. Guys, everybody listen to me. If you're not following Vashon Knives, you're crazy. Totally crazy. They're beautiful. He, everything he does is beautiful. He's got a soothing voice. He's got a voice for radio. This is fantastic. And then also, he's also teaching classes. Yep. So go to his website, Vashon Knives. I checked it out. He's got a great website. Um, get yourself squared away with Noah. He's a, such a great person. And he also does great um, kind of, I don't know if you do, you don't do YouTube, do you? No, I know. Maybe one Good. day. Because stay away from YouTube's, YouTube's. <laughs> I don't have the time place. for it. I'm it's, making knives. I don't have time. It's too much. You know what? listen to Noah Vashon. He's smart. He knows, you know, he, that's what Tony says to me. We were going to do a YouTube channel. He goes, yeah, hey, you could just make another knife right. and we can make more money. You know, I'm like, Hey, he's a good player. <laughs> so Vashon knives on Instagram, 
Noah Vashon, thank you so thank much. You. you are a great person, great friend. I, I'm really, it's an honor to know you. And I, I look up to you. So when I look at your work, it's always inspiring me to work hard. Likewise, so thank likewise, you. my friend. It's been a pleasure. Thank mm-hmm. you. Listen, guys, go over to the Full Blast podcast on Instagram. Give us a follow. You can send in a message. You can, if you, I'm not taking your questions anymore, everybody, because sometimes they're so bad. I can't even <laughs> say. I can't. I can't tell you how bad some of the questions I get are. So I've. I've. I love you with peace and love, but at the same time, it's like it's enough for it. So next week we have the return. Ah, not the return. I've spoken to him a few times. Will Stelter is going to be here. Ooh. We're going to talk to Will. See what he's up to. Uh, unbelievable kid. Just a good dude. I'm psyched to speak to him. And um, I got a lot of, we get a lot of stuff in the can. So, uh, not in the can. We're going to put stuff in the can. So, give us a follow. Uh, leave us a five star review. Help us out. And uh, thank you very much, everybody. And we'll talk to you next Friday. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.